From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. According to official statistics, more than 130 people in the U.S. died every day from opioid-related drug overdoses in 2016 and 2017. How could this happen? Why were addictive opioid drugs prescribed so readily? What kind of pain were these drugs taken to alleviate? And what was, what is the root of such suffering? And what can we marshal in terms of historical and cultural and political insights in an effort to evaluate and take stock of the situation? Max Haven devotes a significant chunk of his forthcoming book, Revenge Capitalism, to an analysis, a radical political analysis, of the opioid epidemic. Max Haven is a writer, movement organizer, and Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice at Lakehead University in Ontario, Canada. His book, Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and the Settling of Unpayable Debts, is due out from Pluto Press in May. When Max joined me recently in studio, I began by asking him about the scale of the opioid crisis in the U.S. Uh, it's massive. By some estimates, it's the largest human-caused health epidemic in American history. Uh, since 1999, the most conservative estimates uh, suggest that half a million people have died of opioid-related causes at upwards of a rate of 50,000 or more a year. So it is a huge public health crisis. Uh, and those, again, are the conservative statistics. They don't count many of the other deaths that are associated with opioid dependency or its uh, various ramifications or aftermaths. Half a million, and this is just in the U.S., half a million deaths? Just in the U.S. Yeah, I'm reading in 2015, reading from your chapter, prescription opioids in 2015 were involved in at least 63% of the record-setting 52,404 recorded deaths from drug overdoses in the world's richest country. What are opioids again? Well, opioids are a set of medicines that are derived uh, originally from the opium poppy, but have more recently been synthesized into a whole range of different types of drugs uh, for the treatment of pain. And up until really the uh, late 20th or early 21st century, largely these drugs were reserved for palliative patients who doctors believed were going to die or people who are in extreme forms of chronic pain. Beginning in the sort of the last decade of the 20th century and early 21st century, a series of pharmaceutical corporations developed essentially what they, they marketed as time release mechanisms for these drugs, notably OxyContin and uh, similar drugs to it that would release opioids slowly into the system of individuals who were taking them. And this was mass marketed to doctors and healthcare providers around the country and around the world, in fact, as a safe and non-addictive means to treat pain, not only in palliative patients who are presumed to, to die soon, but also in patients who are recovering from surgery or who are suffering other forms of maladies as well. So these pharmaceutical companies said these drugs would be non-addictive? Yes. And the the science that they used to justify that was extremely flimsy as we are discovering. However, it became a very, for a whole variety of very interesting sociological reasons, it became a very appealing narrative that doctors were very interested in buying into. We're talking about a prescription opioid ep epidemic, correct? This is not stuff uh, you buy illicitly or off the street. This is stuff that was actually prescribed by doctors under the influence, so to speak, of the marketing of some of these companies. That's precisely it, yes. In the late 90s, early 2000s, we saw a massive spike in the number of prescription opioids that doctors were uh, prescribing to patients. Now, in the mid-2000s, the sort of ramifications of this uh, became realized and the levels of addiction and dependency uh, became much more scrutinized. Insurers and uh, doctors' associations became very concerned that this would lead to lawsuits because so many people were succumbing to overdoses or other sort of terrible effects from opioid dependency. And so uh, doctors cut back dramatically on the number of opioids that they prescribed. But then this led to a huge boom in forms of opioids that were bought off the street, including heroin, and more recently forms of synthetic opioids like fentanyl or carfentanyl. 
what was what were these drugs prescribed for any kind of pain? Well, initially they were prescribed, I think, largely for people who are suffering from chronic pain or acute sort of debilitating pain, for instance, post-surgery. Increasingly, however, doctors across the country were encouraged to begin prescribing them for all sorts of forms of reported pain. And this was partly thanks to the efforts of drug manufacturers, notably Purdue Pharma, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment, I suspect, Uh, who encouraged doctors to begin to perceive pain in uh, very new ways, in in two very particular ways. One of them was that uh, they began to encourage doctors to see pain as what they call the fifth vital sign. So there are four vital signs, which include like pulse and uh, body temperature, that every doctor sort of measures when diagnosing a patient. And these companies encourage doctors to increasingly ask patients about their pain. Uh, And the second thing that I think really transformed the way in which uh, these drugs were prescribed is that there started to emerge a discourse among doctors, again, that was uh, facilitated and pushed by the drug companies, that pain was curable, that it was unnecessary. And between these two premises, that that pain is a vital sign that can be measured by uh, the testimony of patients and that it can be essentially remedied. Uh, you began to see doctors prescribing uh, prescription opioids for more and more and more maladies, including maladies that don't necessarily have a name. So a patient might come in suffering from an unexplicable uh, pain, for instance, constant migraines or headaches or um, pain in the joints. Uh, That doesn't seem to have any other explanation. And in a healthcare system that is, first of all, driven by profit, uh, as the American healthcare system is, and one where doctors are increasingly under the gun to sift through, especially general practitioners, to sift through patients as, as quickly as possible, and where patients have quite a bit of power over their doctors in terms of being able to report uh, what they perceive to be insufficient care to regulatory bodies or to the bosses of the doctors. This essentially created a kind of perfect storm where many doctors started to prescribe these drugs for all sorts of maladies that perhaps it would have been ill-advisable for them to to treat with these drugs, largely because many of the forms of pain that people were reporting when you zoom out and you look at them sociologically, come from the existential pains ultimately of living in racial capitalism. They come from being unemployed, from being unhappy, from being alienated, from uh, the the horrors that waged work in this country uh, puts upon the body of the worker in terms of chronic fatigue and in terms of the sort of injuries uh, of work. There are many, many things that make people sick in a deep sort of existential way in America in the 21st century. And these prescription opioids started to appear as a kind of remedy for this sociological pain that doctors couldn't necessarily uh, diagnose precisely. Who is Nan Golden? Well, I know she's an artist. And how did her life intersect with OxyContin and, and with what results? Nan Golden is a very famous American artist who came to prominence in the 1970s and 1980s as a kind of unflinching photographer of the life of some of the most marginalized members of American society. Growing up in Boston and working in New York, uh, she was active in communities of sex workers, of trans people, uh, and her photography of the kind of trials, tribulations, and also uh, loves and glories of those communities uh, really stood as a testament to that age uh, and are celebrated even still for the sort of window onto a side of America that America didn't and doesn't really want to see very often. She, in the early 2000s, was injured uh, and was prescribed OxyContin by her doctor and became addicted to it, which echoed previous moments of her life where she had been also photographing uh, those who had had succumbed to previous opioid uh, epidemics like the heroin uh, epidemic in, in New York City uh, in the 1980s and 90s. And she was finally able to beat the addiction, but then basically took the story of her addiction and made it into a platform for many different types of people to rally around trying to call to account Purdue Pharma 
uh, the manufacturer of OxyContin, and particularly the Sackler family, who was the family that basically stood behind Purdue Pharma and largely benefited from Purdue Pharma's success in selling OxyContin. Uh, Sackler family had have been for many decades massive supporters of the arts in the United States and around the world and their name bedecks many of the country's most prestigious arts and cultural institutions as well as medical research institutions and universities. So Golden uh, mobilized along with uh, activists from the um, group ACT UP and others a series of demonstrations at these cultural institutions uh, under the name of Sackler Payne, sort of shaming the family and calling for some form of reparation for the uh, terrible harms that they've done to her and many other people who became addicted to their products. Max Haven is my guest. He joins me in studio. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Max is Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice at Lakehead University. That's in Ontario, Canada. He's also a movement organizer and writer. And his book, Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and the Settling of Unpayable Debts, is due out from Pluto Press in May. The Sacklers and many other drug manufacturers, pharmaceutical giants, they argue that it wasn't their fault that people misused their drugs. Yeah. But this is a long-standing tradition where uh, capitalist firms essentially say that they're not responsible for the use of their products uh, and that if people had simply used the product as they were instructed on the box, uh, none of this would have happened. Of course, the reality is that this is nothing but a fig leaf for the fact that Purdue Pharma, it appears increasingly from the evidence, knew exactly what was happening, knew exactly the risks, knew exactly the sociological dynamics that were unfolding where in hundreds of thousands of people were becoming addicted to their drug. And not only did they knew, do very little about it, they actually continued to benefit dramatically from the growth of dependency and the incredibly uh, disastrous sociological effects of it. Let's talk about the opium wars. Uh, opium in India and China, especially in the 19th century, you go over this, you review some very interesting and uh, disturbing history about these conflicts and this kind of uh, manipulation and exploitation, and then you connect it, and we will connect it, to the uh, opioid crisis today, more recently. So, let's see. The British East India Company, uh, tell us about the efforts of this monopolist, really, to grow opium in India. Yeah, the British East India Company, essentially, by the early 19th century, ruled huge swaths of India, either directly uh, with their own, basically, private corporate army or through sort of proxy states that they had all but dominated, uh, still ruled by local rulers, but essentially under East India Company um, domination. And one of the things that they did was to transform large swaths of land into essentially opium plantations, where often through forms of indentured uh, labor, Indian peasants were drafted to grow this highly toxic drug, which was then sent down the rivers to ports, uh, refined into a black tar-like opium product, uh, which was then loaded into chests and shipped by a cartel of merchants to Chinese ports and then sold at those Chinese ports where through which the opium would then flow throughout the, the Chinese empire. With what consequence for the, the Chinese people and I guess even the Chinese government? Massive consequences. Uh, by some estimates, uh, in the middle of the 19th century, somewhere between 20 to 50 percent of the Chinese population uh, might have been dependent on opium, and certainly a large percentage of the imperial court, which is to say the, the sort of upper class of Chinese society, were addicted. Uh, to opium that was almost exclusively being imported by British and other European merchants into Canton at the time. So it was it was a disaster. As, as many people know from, from the histories in the United States of heroin addiction and the recent opioid epidemic, the effect was dramatic 
good statistics were not kept in the King Empire uh, in this way, which was largely rural at the time. But there was a precipitous drop in, uh, of course, labor productivity, an incredible increase in premature death, uh, and a huge amount of social discord and breakdown at all levels of society. Did the British government, did the British East India Company, did the British Empire know that this drug, opium, was devastating China? Yes, absolutely. There were reports from missionaries and diplomats throughout China explaining what was happening. There was a fair amount of opposition to the opium trade within England, uh, largely uh, religious, but also some of it from trade unions and other humanitarian, uh, more humanitarian-focused organizations. But by and large, it was known to the British ruling class because they were benefiting tremendously from it. Investment in the East India Company and other uh, conglomerates that were invested in the opium trade uh, were filling the coffers of uh, many members of the British ruling class and also filling the coffers of the British government at a time when, you know, it was still recovering in many ways from the Napoleonic Wars and needing to maintain what was at that time the world's preeminent naval empire. Were the Opium Wars then about the British trying to ensure, in this case by violence and coercion, that their pipeline into China, their ability to keep opium flowing into China would be maintained? Yes. By and large, it was about maintaining the flow of opium into China and the flow of goods, including tea and porcelain and other uh, goods from China to Europe. Uh, through England and, and British merchants uh, intact. That said, as important as the economic motivations were, there were also ideological motivations as well. So in the Opium Wars, uh, essentially what happened is a small group of British and other European merchants who were located in what was then called Canton came under the scrutiny and uh, regulation of the Chinese government. Some of them were arrested. Certainly the Chinese merchants with whom the Europeans were trading were arrested and put on trial by the Chinese government for the importation of these forbidden drugs. Uh, the Europeans chose to interpret this as a sign of arrogance, uh, disloyalty, hubris, and an offense to what the Europeans imagined to be a superior race or a superior set of races. And for this, the Chinese empire had to be punished in the eyes of many Europeans. Now, there was a great deal of debate within Europe whether this sort of activity should be pursued, but ultimately the opium dealers won out and they essentially solicited the military aid of the British state to essentially crush the Chinese military and navy and impose at the point of a bayonet, literally, uh, a horrific trade agreement that essentially allowed for the continued importation of opium and also indemnified uh, European agents acting within China from any form of punishment uh, within Chinese laws. And I'm going to guess that the British East India Company and its allies made the argument that we heard the Sacklers made, which is basically it's it's not their fault that in this case the Chinese would misuse and abuse opium. This is precisely the case. And in fact, it's alarming to go over some of the arguments made by the Purdue Pharma uh, lawyers and PR department and see their eerie reminiscence of the way in which the East India Company and other opium pushers in the 19th century justified their activities. You know, for instance, the argument that it wasn't their fault if a lawfully traded substance was abused. It's the same thing that the, the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma say today. Or the idea that the problem had to do less with the importation of the drug and more to do with poor state regulation within China. A similar argument is made by Purdue, you know, uh, even, even as recently as a couple of years ago, that really the problem wasn't that they were selling this drug that they knew was addictive, uh, but that there was poor regulation on the part of the state. I'm C.S. Song. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Max Haven joins me. He's a writer, educator, movement organizer. He teaches at Lakehead University. He's director of the Reimagining Value Action Lab. He's written a number of books, including Crises of Imagination, Crises of Power, 
cultures of financialization and art after money, money after art. And we are talking about part of a new book that he has written and will be forthcoming in May. It's called Revenge Capitalism. And it's H-A-I-V-E-N, Max Haven. Uh, One thing you point out in this book that maybe a lot of people don't know is that uh, the English, for obvious reasons, they tried to keep opium from being brought to England, to Britain. Uh, Did they succeed in that? They did indeed try and keep it from being imported to Britain, recognizing very quickly the uh, terrible effect that the drug could have and the the particular susceptibility of humans to opioids. Uh, it's a very particular molecule that acts on the brain in a very particular way, and it is highly addictive. Uh, so this was known to the uh, British very early on, and so they sought to regulate it and in fact, in some of the letters from the commissioner who the Chinese appointed to to sort of crack down on the drug trade in the first opium wars to Queen Victoria, he mentions quite explicitly that the British are trying to regulate the importation and, and why why shouldn't the Chinese also be allowed to regulate the importation of opium into their country? Uh, in the 19th century, opium, however, was, as some scholars argue everywhere in English society. You know, if you read 19th century literature, it's very frequent to see women, for instance, drinking laudanum, which was a concoction made of liquor and opium. Uh, Opium was smoked by many members of the English ruling class and also by many members of the working class as well. For the ruling class, it was considered a kind of dilettantish way to have fanciful dreams, to inspire creativity. For the working class, it was a way to kill the pain of the daily exploitation that was uh, a sort of economic war waged on their bodies. So in spite of the fact that the Victorian government at the time did seek to regulate opium imports, uh, they were not necessarily extremely successful in doing so. And who or what was the opium scourge in England blamed on? Well, in England, uh, but more so in the United States, actually, and and I should mention the United States was quite an active participant in the Opium Wars. And if I can say, actually, uh, many prominent Boston families, including many whose uh, names still grace the, the halls of power, both economic and political today, were deeply involved in the Opium Wars. Uh, but in both the UK and in the United States, the Opium uh, scourge, as it began to come into these countries, was blamed largely on vengeful Chinese migrants or, or visitors who were said to be sort of irrationally vindictive for the subjugation and humiliation of their country and who could not be trusted because they were seeking to use this drug to undermine uh, what was perceived to be a kind of white nation. And this was specifically figured as a kind of peril, or so to speak, as it was named later, uh, the quote-unquote yellow peril, uh, to white women who it was presumed would fall prey to sort of Chinese drug pushers who would then lure them into forms of sexual slavery. Do you find anything ironic about the Chinese being blamed for the introduction and the the abuse by non-Chinese of opium? Yes, of course, because on at least two levels. The first is, of course, the opium was being industrially manufactured by Britain and other European countries. Uh, And it was that same opium largely that was filtering back into the heart of the empire. But the second irony is that many of the Chinese people who were beginning to migrate to England and to uh, Turtle Island, which is to say North America and around the world, were people who had been displaced by the kind of economic and social chaos unleashed by the opium trade. Uh, These were many individuals who'd either lost their land or been forced off uh, out of their villages and had to enter into various forms of indentured servitude uh, and became actually very pivotal to the economic and infrastructural development of North America, for instance, notably in the railways, but also in mining, in the development of ports, and in the development of various forms of uh, service labor in American cities. So this uh, racialized response to the opium epidemic in Britain, in the U.S., uh, we're talking about uh, after the Civil War and after World War One, among other times. 
Um, what, what parallels do you see with today? I mean, we've talked about um, Sackler and its arguments and the arguments of the uh, opium pushers back then, but you know, on this issue of uh, racialized component to talking about and discussing and figuring out how to who to scapegoat for the problem, what uh, what analogies might you make? I'll answer that question in sort of three ways. The first is that when we look at the form of racial scapegoating around drugs and around specifically around opioids, we need to, of course, reckon with the fact that in the United States, the response of the American government to previous rounds of opioid epidemics, uh, including street heroin, has been far less generous and far less understanding. In fact, it's been responded to with uh, militarized policing of urban areas. And this is because the face of earlier epidemics has been largely non-white. The heroin epidemics of the 20th century were often uh, seen in the public eye, though perhaps incorrectly from a kind of demographic perspective as uh, problems of black Latinx communities and so therefore should be dealt with uh, with sort of uh, summary justice rather than the opioid epidemic now which is disproportionately affecting uh, white exurban and suburban and rural populations which is being dealt with as a public health emergency and which figures those who are dependent as essentially victims. So this is the first thing to think about when considering the racial dynamics of these drug epidemics. The second I would point out is that uh, we've seen a massive escalation, especially under the current Trump regime, of a scapegoating of racialized others for this epidemic. Uh, now, largely that... Uh, bile and racist vitriol has been targeted against Latinx people who are accused of bringing drugs across the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, which has been very convenient for Trump's sort of white supremacist narratives that insist that a kind of innocent, benign, and benevolent white heartland has been betrayed by elites betrayed by special interest groups and betrayed by the immigrants they allegedly welcomed and are now being poisoned for their their sort of abused generosity. So there's a huge problem here on that front. At the same time, the Trump administration uh, has used the opioids epidemic as a reason to ramp up their trade war with China, uh, accusing China of not doing enough to crack down on the export of fentanyl and other synthetic opioids, which are now flooding into American uh, cities and jurisdictions. Um, And though there is an element of truth to that in the sense that a huge amount of the synthetic fentanyl, which is now flowing into the United States, is in fact manufactured in China. Both of these uh, sort of racist narratives distract us from the reality that this epidemic was caused by capitalism as a solution to the very problems that capitalism has created, which is to say this was an epidemic fabricated and unleashed by an unscrupulous corporation from which many uh, American capitalists benefited, and it was unleashed precisely to give people a remedy for the ills of alienation, social pain, and the kind of agonies of living in a highly unequal society that are caused by capitalism in the first place. Max Haven, writer, educator, movement organizer. We are talking about his forthcoming book, Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and the Settling of Unpayable Debts. We'll take a short break and speak more with Max about this chapter in his book about the opioid epidemic in the U.S. and, as you might have guessed by now, a great deal besides. Please stay with us. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Max Haven is Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice at Lakehead University in Ontario, Canada. He's director of the Reimagining Value Action Lab 
And the book to look out for in May from Pluto Press is his book, Revenge Capitalism. You, as well as I, are fond of the philosopher Walter Benjamin. And he wrote a lot about industrial capitalism. He also wrote a lot about art and aesthetics. Um, You point in this chapter on the opioid epidemic in this book, Revenge Capitalism, to something he wrote about capitalism's impact on the sensibilities of working people. And you refer to the scholar Susan Buck Morris, who is reading Walter Benjamin and bringing out certain things that you find very interesting. So in this case, because we are talking about a a book that has the word art in it, uh, Walter Benjamin's classic opus, The Work of Art in the Age of Its Mechanical Reproduction, uh, you are, and Susan Buck Morris is focusing not so much on the art and aesthetics point of Benjamin's work? Yes, that's right. Uh, Buck Morris wants us to take seriously the question of aesthetics uh, in the Latin root of the word, which is the the science or the study of the senses, the aestheses. Uh, and her argument is she sort of draws out this enigmatic final passage or final passages in Benjamin's um, chapter where he says that ultimately what happened under the rise of fascism, which would eventually lead, uh, you know, he was a, he was a German Jewish intellectual who, who died fleeing the Nazis. Uh, what happened in the rise of fascism was what he called the aestheticization of politics. But she wants us to go back a step to understand where that aestheticization of politics went, because usually that term is taken to imply the kind of a uh, bombastic, melodramatic, fascist spectacle of Nuremberg—you know, the Nazi Nuremberg rallies or what have you. Uh, Buckmore says, "Well, let's go back a step with Walter Benjamin. Benjamin was thinking about the way in which modern industrialized capitalist life." really abused the body and the senses of the worker in a number of different ways. You can imagine the 19th century sweatshop as this kind of space of noise, of fumes, of of dense bodies all pushed together. You can imagine living in the tenements of Berlin or London or Paris in the late 19th century and the kind of uh, the feeling of being cramped together with all these people, the sickness, the smell, the uh, din of it all. And you you can think about walking around the city in the late 19th century and the noise of traffic of streetcars. You can think of the daily violence of capitalism, not just wars, but people being hit by cars or uh, people losing limbs in factories. And Buck Morris encourages us to think with Benjamin about the aesthetics of everyday life for the working class as this kind of abuse, as this kind of aesthetic overload. Um, that Benjamin is identifying. And Benjamin here is is picking up on some terminology that was being used by psychologists and neurologists at the time of sort of nervous overload uh, that was kind of uh, predated our contemporary psychological understandings. In any case, Benjamin wants us to link this kind of aesthetic overload to the strange political desires of the working class as it turned away from social democracy and communism and towards fascism and Nazism. And his argument is that ultimately the working class in this framework of this kind of constant aesthetic attack seeks out anesthetics. And anesthetics could be drugs. So this helps us explain, for instance, earlier waves of opioid uh, use among the working class. Uh, It could be alcoholism, it could be other intoxicants, but it equally could be popular culture. It could be the kind of mass-produced corporate culture that began to emerge in the late 19th century. That essentially, you know, you go to the, I mean, later on you would go to the film, you would go to the music hall, you would listen to recorded music as a way of sort of dulling the pain of existence within capitalism. And for Benjamin, this leads to a kind of... um, a susceptibility to a certain kind of aesthetic frenzy that the Nazis were able to pick up on, the desire to kind of lose yourself in the mass, to lose yourself in the spectacle, which the Nazis were able to sort of orchestrate and offer, and other fascist governments in Europe were able to orchestrate and offer as well. Um, So 
Buck Morris really wants us to think quite a bit about anesthetics and the politics of anesthetics, not only anesthetic drugs like opioids, but also anesthetics much more broadly as things that dull the pain of our existence. But as Benjamin points out, the the terrible litter of fascism and Nazism is that it offers an expression to the pain that you feel of existing within a capitalist society yet does nothing to remedy in it and in fact will actually make it worse it's a there's a kind of what what frankfurt institute theorists would later think about as a kind of death drive to it a kind of desire for self-annihilation that comes out of this sensory overload if um, drugs like oxycontin could be seen as anesthetics pharmaceutical anesthetics then what do you see what do you theorize such drugs to be what do they well first of all as you said they address a certain kind of pain that comes with capitalism and capitalist exploitation um what would the administration of these drugs to people do to uh, their ability to fit in to become parts of the capitalist machine what, what do you see this anesthetic this particular anesthetic doing in this particular historical moment so on the one hand, we have a society, a capitalist economy, which encourages the vast majority of us to struggle and compete with one another to survive in an increasingly austere environment. So we are each told that we must uh, accumulate our human capital, you know, go to school, get a good resume, have a good track record, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in order to compete for some of the few jobs that still exist. We have to hustle to survive. So for most of us, we are in a position of constant hustling where we sacrifice our health and our time and our bodies to the dynamo of economic survival. Um, and that's true of people at the top of the economy who, you know, are intellectual workers who have to struggle to compete with one another for the few middle class jobs which still exist. And it's also true of people near the bottom of the, the pecking order in our society who are working multiple part time jobs, who are sitting in their car for four hours a day, uh, driving from part time gig to part time gig. There's an incredible wear and tear upon the body, the soul and the mind that this form of capitalism we live under uh, induces in us all. On the other hand, a huge proportion of the population and a growing proportion of the population are simply being surplused by capitalism, which is to say that those of us who are surplused are dependent on capitalism in the sense that we need to buy our food, our clothing, our housing with money that we would earn with wages. And yet we are, for all intents and purposes, abandoned by that system. Our labor is not necessary for that system to persist. And so we are left to our own devices. And it's in between these two sets of people in our society that the opioid epidemic does its kind of anesthetic work. There is the overworked rat race uh, individual who's constantly uh, sacrificing their body, their time, their mind, and their soul in order to compete to survive. And then there's a huge other population who are idled, uh, who are essentially told that their labor and their participation in the society is no longer needed. And for both of those populations in different ways, the opioid presents a very useful anesthetic. For the hustler, the rat race uh, victim, it allows you to push through the pain. It allows you to keep working. It allows you to keep going. For the surplus, for the people who are abandoned by the system, it offers a way out of or a way of coping with the incredible existential pain of essentially being told that your society has no use for you and that you are left to your own devices in a cruel and uncaring society. As far as the ideal that's pushed upon us as capitalist subjects, homo economicus is perhaps paramount according to, to your chapter what is homo economicus and how severe, how strong is the pressure for us all to, to be that, to occupy the figure of homo economicus? So homo economicus means economic man, essentially. And it's a model of thinking about human behavior and activity that takes the capitalist economy as a kind of 
uh, natural state. So if we understand humanity as homo economicus, we imagine that competing to accumulate wealth, to outdo one's opponents, to uh, survive in a hostile world is the norm. Um, now, this is a theory that has been propounded over the last 200 or so years, largely by capitalist thinkers, political economists, and philosophers who in some ways want to suggest that capitalism is the best and most natural system that's ever existed, that humans benefit from and will ultimately uh, thrive best in a competitive system that leads to lower prices, greater market efficiencies, and greater innovation. My thinking around Homo economicus in this essay is really inspired by the work of Jamaican philosopher and writer Sylvia Winter, who suggests that it has become the kind of unquestionable cosmological myth of our age. And she has a particular genealogy for this. So in the great age of colonialism and empire uh, from the 16th century up to the 19th century, I should say the 18th century, Europeans began to develop what she calls homo politicus or what she calls man number one or man one, which is the idea that humanity can be defined as the sort of politically active public man, this kind of patriarchal uh, figure who has a private life of the home and then goes out into the public and makes their way in the world. This was sort of modeled after the ruling class gentlemen of the early modern and early capitalist period. Um, this model of man one or homo politicus, though, gives way in the 19th century and 20th century to an even more austere and competitive figure or myth uh, myth man is man too or homo economicus and in winter's view both of these depictions of what humanity is are fundamentally built around a white supremacist and patriarchal logic which is to say that white rich men who were dominating the globe and in many ways still do dominate the globe were taken as the norm around which to build these kind of mythological constructs and everyone else women children, people of color, indigenous people, disabled people, were framed as lacking, as not being sufficiently like homo politicus and later homo economicus. And for winter, we can only understand the world we live in if we understand it as ruled by a form of colonial racial capitalism and patriarchal capitalism that seeks to recalibrate every social institution around homo economicus. And this helps explain not only the incredible competitiveness and capitalist destruction that's being unleashed on the world today, it also helps us explain the continued persistence of patriarchy, white supremacy, and colonialism in the world that we live in. Max Haven joins us on Against the Grain, H-A-I-V-E-N. Again, Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice at Lakehead University, and his book, Revenge Capitalism, is due out from Pluto Press in May. We are talking about a chapter of that forthcoming book about the uh, opioid epidemic and a whole lot else. Is it fair to say that the capitalist system is trying to make homo economicus out of each and every one of us so that the capitalist machine operates more smoothly, ever more smoothly? Um, and also, is it fair to say that that ideal, that this, um, this mythic figure is something attainable by everyone who puts a lot of effort into modeling himself or herself into somebody who has all these desires and ambitions that go along with this figure? Well, I think we're increasingly being told that all of us have to emulate or try and approximate the ideal of Homo economicus, even though at one point Homo economicus was solely reserved for sort of white ruling class men of able body, um, now it is an ideal that we're told should be emulated by everyone. And just to give you two examples, we have, for instance, the kind of uh, neoliberal faux feminism of uh, Sheryl Sandberg, you know, the author of Lean In, which suggests that if only women acted more like homo economicus, they would be able to succeed in the cutthroat world of corporate America. And we also have schemes like, for instance, microfinance or even subprime lending, which specifically target women of color here in the United States and around the world, which suggests that the way out of poverty 
for these populations is to again have capital and to become like Homo economicus, making shrewd, rational, and competitive investments. Uh, so we are all encouraged to emulate and become a Homo economicus, and we're all told we can win to the extent that we are able to approximate the ethos of Homo economicus. But the reality is that in a capitalist society, a capitalist economy, even if everyone did that, only a handful of us would succeed and claw our way to the top over everyone else. So it is a sabotaged gift. And that gift will be sabotaged, as Winter points out, and as other critical race theorists who are interested in the intersections of race and capitalism point out, including Liza Lau and Denise Ferreira da Silva, all note this is a offer that is especially sabotaged for people of color and especially sabotaged for women because they were never meant to have a place within this world order. The persistence of racism, sexism, and other systems of oppression don't go anywhere under the rule of Pax Capitalis, the peace of capitalism. They simply get wound into the economic system as it exists. What does it mean to you and to Sylvia Winter, the scholar you, you've cited, um, that opioids aren't just things that are, are ingested, but that our body makes them? Absolutely. And, and let me just preface uh, this by saying that Winter's work is extremely sophisticated and complex, and I, I worry I'm not necessarily doing it justice, but I'll tell you what I've, I've taken from that work. Winter uh, is very interested in the way that the opioid receptor network in the brain works. And to cut a very long story short, and of course I should preface this by saying I am no neuroscientist, <laughs> um, our brain in the process of thinking, in the process of living, in the process of responding to the stimulus of the world releases all sorts of different chemicals, including various forms of opioids and dopamine and other neurotransmitters. Winter is specifically interested in the opioid receptor network, which is one of the ways that the brain teaches us pleasure. So when we experience something that's pleasurable, not just, you know, in the, the fits of passion or when we see something beautiful or when we laugh, but also in small everyday ways, our brain essentially rewards us with a hit of what is endogenously produced opioids, opioids that our brain actually produces, essentially to feed itself. And there's a, there's a feedback loop here. So the brain releases opioids to reward us for what we like, for, for pleasurable things. And therefore, we develop narratives that teach us that certain things in the world are desirable. So when you see a sign for ice cream and you like ice cream, let's say, your brain produces a small amount of endogenous opioid and then you go and you have the ice cream and it produces more opioid and you essentially, the brain in a certain sense, if you want to think about it this way, it kind of addicts itself as a way of teaching itself what is desirable. Now, that process for winter, uh, and this is I think quite brilliant and a, an important observation, this process is sociological or as she puts it, sociogenic. Uh, and that means that you don't just learn to like ice cream because it happens to be tasty. You learn to like ice cream because as a child you're taken and, you know, your parents maybe hype up the excitement about the ice cream. You learn that ice cream is delicious after repeated attempts. And in any case, ice cream doesn't exist without humans. Ice cream is something that humans make, something that humans market, something that humans talk about. We develop a discourse. So ultimately for winter, what happens is we are a species which she calls in contrast to Homo economicus, Homo narans, the storytelling species, the narrating species. And through the stories that we tell ourselves sociologically, the stories we tell ourselves about who and what is valuable in our world, we actually, in a certain way, hack into our own opioid feedback loop. We essentially tell ourselves what is desirable, and then our brain responds by rewarding us when we move towards those things which we desire. But all of this is not, and Winter is quite categorical about this, she wants us to move completely away from a kind of social Darwinist idea that this is all about, you know, reproducing the body so it can reproduce uh, sexually and therefore pass on its genes, the sort of Richard Dawkins selfish gene argument for human behavior. Instead, Winter wants us to think about the way that every society creates these narratives 
And these narratives that we tell ourselves about who and what is valuable then play into the opioid feedback loop in our brands. And this, for Winter, is she comes at this not because, I mean, she probably does have an extreme interest in human nature, as do we all, but really what she's trying to explain is the forms of vitriolic disgust, the forms of sadistic pleasure, and the forms of incredible cruelty that can be unleashed through racism, sexism, and other systems of power. When certain populations are figured in our shared narratives as desirable and other populations are figured as disgusting. Uh, And she is interested in the way that racism ultimately, through a history of colonialism, through a history of capitalist exploitation that relies on racism, reprograms in a certain sense this opioid feedback loop in our minds such that we become essentially fixated on imagining that everything that homo economicus would think would be good, competition, acquisition, accumulation, private property, personal satisfaction at the expense of social satisfaction or or social cohesion, that all those are desirable. Whereas all sorts of things are figured then as disgusting or associated in some ways with death, symbolic death, as she puts it. This would be forms of collectivism or collective participation. These would include people who do not fit into the image of homo economicus, people of color, women, disabled people, trans people, anyone who doesn't fit into that kind of narrative we've constructed about who and what is desirable and valuable. We'll have to leave it there, Um, but as you might be able to guess, there are so many notions and ideas and insights in just this one chapter of Max Haven's forthcoming book, Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and the Settling of Unpayable Debts. We'll put a link to that book due out in May from Pluto Press on our website, againstothegrain.org. Max teaches at Lakehead University. He directs the Reimagining Value Action Lab. His other books include Art After Money, Money After Art, and a book that he co-authored with Alex Kasnabish called The Radical Imagination, Social Movement Research in the Age of Austerity. Uh, Max, always a pleasure to talk to you. What a treat to finally talk to you in studio, and thank you so much for your work. Such a pleasure. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time.